Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Uber wants to be the Amazon of retail, of e-commerce. The Disney Plus service might actually end up benefiting Netflix. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. Capital return is the key story for the U.S. banks. The telcos naturally are moving into content distribution. I think it's a good move. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Over the next hour, we are going to dig inside the big business stories impacting Wall Street and the global markets. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at concerns over the viability and transparency of China's largest asset management company. Plus, pandemic-winning e-tailers are raising cash to finance M&A. E-tailers? E-tailers. It's a new thing. E-tailers. All right, but first, uh, we're going to talk about the rise in inflation. Okay, even if it's temporary, it could still have an impact on producer prices and consumer prices, which, ipso facto, influence margins. So let's talk to Gina Martin-Adams, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Equity Strategist. So first off, Gina, in your work historically, do S&P companies and their margins track one or the other or like the spread between the two? Yeah, I think it's a great question and unfortunately one that no one has the perfect answer for. (laughs) When we look across a bunch of different inflation indicators, there are key indicators that tend to correlate better with margins for the S&P 500 than others. But even the strongest of the strong correlations have a roughly correlation coefficient of roughly a third. Um, so it's they're not fantastic correlations. Nonetheless, what you tend to find most of the time is as inflation rises, margins rise, except for once you reach key trigger points. Um, there are two that we really like as consistent in the past. One is PPI. When core PPI surpasses the 2% threshold on a year-ago basis, it has historically led to some let's call it margin volatility in the S&P 500. Margins don't necessarily fall in mass after that trigger point, but they do tend to sputter somewhat. And we reached that key trigger point this spring. Yeah, I mean, Gina, we've certainly heard a lot of companies in the most recent round of earnings calls really call out the rise in some of their raw materials, whether it's lumber for a home builder or some of the hard metals for uh, some other manufacturing companies. Are we, in fact, starting to see... Margins crimp in f- f- by by inflation. 
We are to some degree, certainly not for the overall S&P 500 at large. We're still seeing, in fact, margin forecasts rise as much better than expected economic growth continues to emerge, powering stronger sales growth and stronger EPS forecasts going forward. But we did, over the course of just the last month, see almost a third of S&P 500 constituents or members of the index reduce their margin guidance, or analysts at least reduced their margin forecast for those companies. So we are starting to see this pick away. I think it's best exhibited also in the difference between consumer prices and producer prices. Consumer prices are running at a pace well below producer prices, and that's a pretty big warning signal historically as well. As a matter of fact, the spread between the two is at a 40-year low. So at least right now, producers are struggling to pass along those price increases to consumers. We hope that the gap will start to close going forward. But for now, there does appear to be a bit of friction. Can volume make up for margin in that if they can't charge more for the 10 products they're selling, can they sell 20? It's a smart question, and I think for certain industries that's absolutely the case, and I think that's part of the reason why S&P 500 margin forecasts at large have not experienced any compression because we are seeing such a rapid pace of sales increase. We are seeing such a strong demand improvement post-pandemic. The result is you're still seeing sales accelerate at a very, very rapid pace. The question I think most investors are asking themselves is, okay, yes, they're accelerating rapidly now, but if we don't get through this sort of uh, inflationary hump fast enough, the sales forecasts aren't going to accelerate rapidly forever. We get into 2022, 2023, will we still be contending with these supply shortages? Will there still be uh, a lot of trouble for companies that are trying to pass on prices in an environment where maybe sales growth isn't quite as fast? Gina, based upon your work historically, are there sectors that tend to do better in a rising pricing environment or a little bit more of an inflationary environment? How should investors think about that if if they're in the camp that says, hey, this is something more than just transitory? Yeah. So the sectors that tend to consistently do better in a rising inflationary scenario are energy materials and industrials. Energy and materials first, and then select industrials second. Um, that's pretty consistent throughout time. It makes a lot of sense. These are the commodity producers, right? Mm-hmm. So they tend to be the, they represent the, they're represented by the PPI acceleration, which overall producer prices are accelerating more than 9% year over year. So really rapid growth in commodity prices is generally very beneficial for these groups, which tend to just pass that price right on to their end consumer. Uh, the industrials is where it gets a little bit messier because they're not, some of them are producers, some of them are, are price takers. Many of them tend to have a, a stronger degree of pricing power than we give them credit for and historically have held up pretty well in an inflationary environment, particularly when that inflation is driven by commodity cost increase as well. But you do have some supply constraints emerging in that space, so it's not as easy um, as we would certainly like it to be. The consumer industries are on the other end of of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. They're taking on those costs, and oftentimes, unless consumer prices are really accelerating rapidly and the consumer is just shopping till they drop, then you might have some um, greater struggles emerge in the consumer space. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, thank you so much. Let's, you know, she said I did two good questions. Yeah, I'm not sure I got one today. Not, not, not yet. <laughs> yeah. There's more time. There's more time. Gina, thanks a lot. Gina Martin Adams of Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief Equity Strategist. Coming up on the program, inflationary pressure might actually be good for waste management companies. That's coming up.
I see a theme. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BIGO on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 13 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. All right, we're having some inflation into this market. The question is, is it transitory or is it something more long-lasting? What does it mean across the board for certain industries? Well, inflation actually does more good than harm for waste management companies. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industrial Services Analyst Scott Levine. Scott, talk to us about these waste management companies. I'm thinking, you know, um, waste management and all the other big ones that you see around if there is an inflationary environment, what does that do to their operations, their income statement? Yeah, no, I think uh, inflation in general has been good for the waste companies in our view. And I think that you know, could be a bit of an anomaly for the industrials group in general. And, and there's a couple of key reasons for that. Number one, um, and perhaps most importantly, these are service companies. So you don't see a lot of commodity costs within the balance sheet and income statement in general. Uh, But the biggest reason really is the difference between labor costs, which are the largest cost category for these companies, at about 33% of the operating cost base, and pricing, uh, which tends to be indexed to inflation and tends to adjust periodically, typically annually, sometimes semi-annually, uh, and uh, with a a lag, as uh, as I said, but... um, uh, those inflation index kickers uh, basically affect, I'd say, 30 to 40 percent of the of the business, mostly residential pickup. But what we've seen over time is that wage inflation has been relatively steady. Mm. Uh, these, you know, it tends to grow between two to three percent a year. And so during periods of time where CPI is running in the one to two percent range, these companies are basically eating those cost increases on the labor side and margins tend to be under pressure. And conversely, when we see inflation rates, and again, these are total inflation rates, not just core. Mm-hmm. So they're inclusive of, uh, of commodities and food and energy. When we see those push closer to the 2-3% range, uh, these waste companies are better able to offset those wage increases, which, again, they need to pay out in order to keep their, um, uh, you know, their, um, their labor costs and their employee base pretty uh, content. Okay, well, let's get you set me up there. So I was going to ask about wages, but but I can hold on to that. Um, so that's one of the reasons. What are some of the other reasons why this industry does well uh, with higher inflation? Yeah, no, I'd say of the when we look at the other costs that really matter to these companies, things like transfer and disposal costs, so the cost they're paying to tip the garbage and bring it to a landfill. Uh, fleet maintenance and repair costs, which is basically wear and tear on the trucks. Uh, those are each between 10 to 15 percent of the operating cost base. Those don't typically correlate uh, closely with inflation. They tend to correlate more with volume growth. And so what we anticipate will happen there likely is we'll see an acceleration here with volumes turning positive for the first time uh, since COVID-19 began in the second quarter. Uh, looking for mid-single-digit growth there, and then maybe 1% to 2% volume growth uh, for the full year, inclusive of a, a low to mid-single-digit decline in the first quarter. And so we don't anticipate much of a problem uh, in recovering uh, those types of costs, uh, given that correlation. 
The other thing that I would say that's important to note here is that you know the area where you'd probably see the biggest uh, pinch is on fuel costs, uh, and that can include transportation, third-party transportation uh, costs. So fuel and fuel-related, direct and indirect, we think is about 5 to 10 percent of the operating cost base. Uh, and in, in most cases, I would say these uh, waste companies implement temporary surcharges where they can recover these costs, albeit with maybe a two- to three-month lag, depending on the billing cycle. Uh, they could see a little bit of a pinch there. Uh, you know, but again, I think it should probably be more temporary, uh, and it, it would much be it would be much larger, I, I think, on the margin side than it would necessarily be uh, on the earnings side. So when we look at the the business as a whole. Given the importance of labor costs relative to fuel, I think you're more likely to see uh, gain rather than pain for these companies overall. Talk to us, Scott, about the pricing power of these companies. When I think about the waste management business, I can only think, like, I think it's, it feels pretty consolidated to me. Waste management, Republic Services suggests to me that maybe they do, in fact, have some pricing power to pass along some of these increased costs. Yeah, no, the industry is uh, is quite consolidated, as you point out. There was a merger between the number one and the number four player in the space this past year with waste management acquiring advanced disposal. We also have a, a company that has rapidly emerged that IPO'd early last year, GFL Environmental in uh, in Canada, that has you know done $4 billion worth of acquisitions last year and has emerged to be the number four player in the space. So some changes in the names in the top five, I would say. But overall, about 50% of the business uh, in the hands of uh, the large consolidated players, that top five. Uh, and then I'd say maybe 30% is still municipally owned. Uh, so, you know, New York uh, City Sanitation Department, uh, government-owned entities and, and, and folks of that nature. And then the remaining 20% or so are small mom and pops, which tend to be collection only. They don't tend to own landfills. And so this gets to your point about pricing power, since it's the big guys that typically can afford a landfill, which can cost you know up to $200 million to, uh, to develop and are subject to onerous uh, environmental and permitting and uh, uh, liability requirements. Uh, that's an area where the, the big guys can kind of flex their muscles, and those uh, disposal costs are a much larger piece of the operating cost base for the mom and pop. So if the majors want to keep the, the smaller guys disciplined, because the smaller guys are typically willing to live on lower earnings and uh, margins, uh, they can keep those uh, prices at the landfill high and enforce discipline on the industry overall. I know this is probably late to be asking this question, but how would I describe to my mom what a waste management company is so I can understand all those input costs? Sure. So, you know, it's a uh, it's a combination of collection and disposal predominantly, uh, Alex. Uh, I'd say about 60% of the business is hauling. Another 20 to 25%, I would say, is transfer and disposal. And that's basically getting rid of the garbage. And I'd say another... Five to ten percent of the business is other, and most of what falls in that bucket is recycling, uh, mm. which is uh, a good point. Now, uh, that's an area where these companies are going to benefit from the surge in commodity prices, uh, which is an area we haven't touched upon because it's more of a revenue category uh, than it is a cost category. So that's uh, 
predominantly big brown boxes. And then there's other things like aluminum and non-ferrous metals and uh, oily waste that we can get into, which is pretty ugly business, as I'm sure you can imagine. But the bottom line is all of those prices have gone up dramatically, and that's an area where these waste companies can benefit. All right, Scott, thanks so much. We really appreciate that. That's Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Industrial Services Analyst, Scott Levine. This is what happens when you live in the city your whole life. All right, well, coming up on the program, the stunning loss of confidence in China's largest asset management company. We're going to break down the latest. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence via BI Go on the terminal. I'm Paul Sweeney. And I'm Alex Steele. It's 25 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analyst covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. It's a company that you may not know, but you should, because it garnered a ton of government support from China and could have affected many, many investors. And the company is called China Harong. Uh, it's a huge asset manager, and we're going to break down what happened to it and what the government did with Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist. Now, Damien, you need to talk to us like we're 10. <laughs> exactly. Because this is complicated. This gets hard. And you are deep in weeds, man. You need to help us here. All right. Let me take a step back here. So China Huarong was established back in 1999. It kind of emerged following the 1997 uh, Asian debt crisis, right? And it was established to acquire non-performing loans from the major banks. And in China, there are four, right? There are four major banks. ICBC is one of them. China Huarong was the bad bank that was created back in 1999 to buy the NPLs from ICBC, right? There are three others, China Syndic, China Great Wall, China Orient. We don't have to get into that. But imagine J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells, and Bank of America having these asset management companies formed to buy all their NPLs after a major financial crisis. So that's what we're talking about here. And China Huarong has got today $263 billion of assets. And the reason we need to be concerned about it is because... Beijing doesn't handle this the right way. The $54 trillion Chinese financial system is all priced on the concept that the Chinese government is going to be behind every loan bond and deposit that's made onshore. This concept of the sovereign backstop in China, the premium of that implicit guarantee is what we're really talking about here today. And that's what's being called into question, Alex. All right. What happened to China Horong? What went wrong, I guess? 
let's start with most recently, they delayed the reporting of their financial results on the 31st of March. Now, this following uh, the fact that Chairman uh, Lai Xiaomin, who was executed for bribery earlier this year, um, had basically kind of gotten into a, 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 you know, the, the there was definitely a lot of scrutiny surrounding the company. And so they delayed financial results. The stock was suspended from trading in Hong Kong. And off the back of that, you know, people started to focus on the fact that, wow, you know, what is going on? You know, Huang had ventured out into non-core areas, securities, lending, trusts, over and above, you know, just managing the NPLs for large banks. And really, at the end of the day, these four asset management companies became the primary mechanism for shadow financing post-global financial crisis in 2008, because what are they doing? They're funding project finance, construction, property loans, etc. And so now today, what are we seeing? We're seeing Fitch downgrading China Farong's, uh debt by three notches uh, just over the last month, and Moody's doing the same downgrading by one notch. Um, so this is an investment-grade entity that's now trading at triple B and the perpetual notes are trading into junk. And so let me give you some numbers here so you can really kind of understand $42 billion of offshore and local bonds outstanding, $22 billion of that is offshore debt denominated primarily in dollars and it's, you know, index eligible. And now we're looking at losses across the board of between 30 and 45% just since the end of March when they didn't announce their financials, right? And so that's the situation here. And it's creating a whole slew of interesting opportunities from cap structure arbitrage at the front end of the curve to really digging into the weeds and understanding, you know, what's going on in China credit and what from a distressed investor perspective should we really be looking at? And there's no shortage of things to discuss here today, Alex. It seems to me that that would be like a no-brainer, right? Like China would have to go in and support this company. But that really wasn't the case. I couldn't agree with you more. And that's what's, you know, kind of riling the markets here because, you know, many would have thought that, I mean, they have the money. Why wouldn't Beijing step in and backstop, you know, this company? I mean, it is too big to fail. It is a central state-owned enterprise, right? But the state has been very, very quiet. I mean, no articles in the South China Morning Post, Alex, right? So, you know, what this really comes down to is the fact that President Xi is looking to reduce moral hazard. And the fact of the matter is this, you know, the fact that Huarong could go to offshore creditors and borrow inexpensively from U.S. dollar investors and then basically take risk onshore um, is something that she is looking to effectively put an end to, you know, and it's lowering funding costs onshore for domestic borrowers. And what it's really now calling into question, and this is maybe getting a little too deep into the weeds for you, but I you? Have to no, say, no, no, you don't do that. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, it is so, I mean, this is, it's fascinating stuff. It's a great time to be alive, Paul, I have to say. And the reason is this. <laughs> we just got it, through a pandemic, the, or getting through. It, no, I'll tell you why. Because it, in the height of the pandemic, in February of 2020, something that happened in China that not a lot of people are paying attention to is the Peking University, the Founders Group. Basically, it's, you know, the university, it's one of the two top universities in China. You know, they you know, have a uh, you know, securities business, you know, commodity trading business, et cetera. They defaulted on, you know, $1.2 billion in debt. And that restructuring that's been ongoing since then is setting the precedent for what's going to happen here in Huarong, right? It's, basically, they have keep well provisions designed so that Huarong used some offshore entity to issue these dollar bonds. And now what the government is effectively telling us is that the losses those U.S. dollar you know, bondholders are effectively holding are going to be much lower than you would otherwise thought. I mean, much lower to the tune of, let's call it 13% as opposed to a 31% recovery at the end of the day. So this is Ivan Bosky. This is, you know, Mike Milken <laughs> stuff. This is like fundamental to the health of the Chinese credit market. 
And it's just fascinating stuff to see it play out, I have to say. Damien, thanks a lot. Damien Sassauer, Bloomberg Intelligence, Chief Emerging Market Credit Strategist. Coming up on the program, pandemic-winning e-tailers are raising cash to finance M&A. We turn to Europe next. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 39 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, if you thought that consumers saved a lot during the pandemic, it's time to take a look at corporates and how much they actually saved in the pandemic. Now, Bloomberg Intelligence uh, published a report that shows a capital allocation across a stock 600 in Europe by sector and then drills down into the companies. And the woman behind that uh, joins us now, Deborah Aiken, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Luxury Goods Analyst. Okay, Deborah, um, what'd you learn uh, during this uh, analysis? Okay, um a sharp earnings recovery, uh, which should give European companies really um, added ammunition to increase leverage and engage more actively in shareholder payouts and M&A, is what came through based on our analysis. Um, And then when we went further than that, uh, we really thought, okay, well, actually, share buybacks and acquisitions are on track. To really get back to 2019 levels already, we can see that coming through. But dividends, a bit of a slower uh, recovery there. So um, quite quite few, um, quite a lot of information came through. We looked across 11 sectors overall, strategy and also credit side. Um, when we're looking versus 2021, CapEx estimates are 5% higher. Um, you know, there are some companies which will look to 2022 for recovery. Travel, oils, utilities really put in a lot back in themselves to make good. And then completed and outstanding deals over 120 billion euros by Q2, which will be more than 40% higher than two years ago. Dividend recovery, as we said, more mixed. Dividends in particular, if we looked, we, we took a new... Uh, total, 24th of May versus the pre-1Q reporting level. And with bank dividends um, still restrained in Europe, that meant that actually dividend outlook for 2021 in aggregate is down by 10%. All right, Deb, you're the expert on all things luxury. Um, How did your luxury companies, your luxury brands, how did they weather and how are they weathering the pandemic? And what do you expect them to do with their balance sheets going forward? Yeah, really, really positive, actually. A very strong start in Q1. Um, really raised agility coming out of pandemic. So, you know, just as we saw a few years earlier, luxury goods have stepped up again. Um, full of cash generation recovery, low net debt. You know, we're looking at net debt at around 0.5 times for this, this sector overall. Um, and really, the sales revival is surprised in Q1. Mm. So that we're seeing dividend reinstatement and share buybacks across the board, um, despite 20 to 30% store closing still in Q1 in Europe. Um, okay, so so let's actually drill down a little bit more uh, into that. So um, every time one of these guys releases earnings, like I'm just remembering LVMH, like the last quarter, I mean, these numbers are blockbuster. So wh- who's kind of winning in this? And how much more growth can there be? Um, so we have very much the e-tailers. And if we think about where growth is coming from, China, Korea, Taiwan, the U.S. domestically has been so, so strong and continues to be accelerating and e-commerce raises prospects overall. So we're looking for companies which have that kind of overlay. The watchmakers have had a good recovery. 
certainly the big luxury makers have had a good recovery. And then seeing what's happening because of the US, particularly in 2021, we're seeing names like Tapestry and Capri, the watchmakers Fossil and others move forward at a pace. Um, really outstretching um, share price appreciation of the sector. But then we still go back to LVMH. We started this by thinking about where cash levels are, what will, ha- what will happen from a capital allocation perspective. You know, January, LVMH's deal for Tiffany eventually completed $15.8 billion. And then they came through straight after results, a share buyback reinstatement for as much as 10% of their capital. And after that, only 75 million paid in euros, but upped its stake in Todd's to 10%. And we see that as a likely future takeover. So there's so much going on. And then if we think about the second half of 2021, we're starting to see companies really partnership more deeply. So we have Richemont has put $550 million in also with Alibaba to do lots more work on Farfetch, which is the marketplace name. Um, in the e-tailer re- leader, as we would say, within the luxury space. So certainly lots to go for in the year ahead. All right, Deb. Define for me revenge shopping. What does it mean and how does it factor into the retailer's outlook? So I, I, I'm going to ask you what you mean by that. What do you mean by revenge shopping? Do you mean just um, the pent-up demand, the bottleneck? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, people, or, yeah, people didn't, okay. get, didn't, didn't get the save. Yeah, I mean, they didn't get to spend. They didn't get to shop. They did. They did on e-commerce, right. um, but not all. Not all brands are on there. You know, honestly, e-commerce for for high-end luxury and high-end beauty. We saw some numbers: fifty, sixty, seventy percent up on where where they were, and we now have about twenty-five to thirty percent of sales mix coming through from um, e-commerce. But that aside, there are still brands out there who will only allow you to shop on their own websites, uh, part, of, part of LVMH, Louis Vuitton and others, Chanel, um, very, very restricted in what they do. So there are certainly those who are heading back to stores. We already saw that in April, May last year, green, green shoots starting through in China into May, June, July. We saw growth recovered in China versus a year ago. So that was very, very strong. And it is 12 months later, but we're seeing that especially across the U.S. and just starting up in niche categories and by brand in Europe. I feel like I'm always revenge shopping. Um, <laughs> all right, Deborah, thanks a lot. Deborah Aiken, a Bloomberg Intelligence a Senior Luxury Goods Analyst. All right, let's turn now to e-commerce. Everybody had boxes coming to their doors during the pandemic, and that resulted in e-tailers really putting up some great numbers. They've got great balance sheets now, lots of cash flow. They're looking at retail M&A for more we welcome Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Retail Analyst Tatiana Lisitsina. Tatiana, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, the e-tailers have had just a tremendous go of it, uh, really just over the last couple of years in particular. I guess they're really looking to put some of that capital that they've been able to generate to deploy on M&A. What are you seeing? Um, yes, that's right. Um, to be uh, honest, um, some of the projects have been postponed throughout the pandemic, Um uh, due to some uncertainty, so now they are really ready to deploy those plans. Um, and the pandemic has boosted online penetration and customer acquisitions for e-commerce retailers, um, though it has caused a big shock to high street shops, with many actually not surviving. So now there is a 
one of opportunity to acquire some of those well-established brands. For example, Asus and Boohoo snapped up um, the failed store-based Arcadia brands at a bargain prices and uh, turned them online. Um, Boohoo then also acquired a department store, Debenhams, expanding into new categories such as home and beauty. So, yeah, those well, acquisitions... Well, that's really, that's really interesting because um, if they're online only, I mean, they do really well online. So then they go and then they, they find these brick-and-mortar stores that have a lot of value in that they're so cheap and not making any money. But then how does like an online-only retailer turn that store on High Street into something that's good? Um, well, Boohoo has actually a history of doing that. Um, it's, uh, uh, it has acquired um, six uh, brands uh, over the past 12 months and turned them online. Um, it, um, it's, it, it has a brilliant um, agile supply chain, which is uh, reactive to customers' needs and trends. So um, this, is, this is the way they, they keep up. Of course, uh, stores do have some value as well. Um, they, customers still do like stores. Um, and for example, Salando um, has uh, launched a new, pro- a new initiative um, and it's, it's extending also its offer to offline stores. Um, so the idea is that physical stores can um, sell uh, via the Salando platform and um, yeah. So Tatiana, here in the U.S., omni-channel retail is kind of a big trend here. You can do it online. You can do it at the store. You can order online, pick up at the store, all that kind of stuff. Is that a concept that's really uh, important across Europe? Um, for sure. Uh, so many of the physical retailers have been uh, accelerating their uh, omni-channel transformation and they're trying to uh, improve uh their own online capability. And again, uh, online retailers do see as well some of the benefits. So, for example, um, the, uh, with Salando, uh, as I mentioned, the um, collaboration with stores, uh, the, one of the benefits is being this enhanced customer proposition uh, with a greater product range, faster delivery, and also something like in-store returns. And also actually um, access to more local brands. Um, in terms of uh, profit, and all of that. What's going to be the delivery there? Um, so, um, some of those acquisitions um, at the beginning, some of those acquisitions are profit dilutive, um, but are expected to um, generate profit in the coming years. But the focus at the moment is on growth. Um, the online retailers are trying to sustain the growth momentum post pandemic. Uh, so, for example, Plano shifted its primary focus now into growth investments, which will restrain its um, EBIT margin um, for uh, until 2025. Um, but in the long run, the strategy is more profitable um, at a larger scale, so it will be profit accretive. All right, Tatiana, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Tatiana Lissitsina, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Retail Analyst. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. It's 57 minutes past the hour, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. 
It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.